Joe Mowgli has been successful with every business endeavor he's had so far in his career, from investment banker at Merrill Lynch to CEO of TD Ameritrade. But he began as a football coach, and now he's... We had a standard. Guess what that was? Standing on two feet, you take responsibility for yourselves, you always treat others with dignity and respect, and you live with the consequences of your actions. The whole company was worth $700 million, roughly, when Joe joined, and the day he left, it was worth $10 billion. Is the market actually broken? Let's bring in Joe Mowgli. The only person in the world to write books on both football and investing. The better you know who you are, you increase the probability, you'll make better decisions under stress than what you would be had that not been the case. The first play on the 15-yard line going in. Toughness can be screwed as macho. That's not toughness to me. Toughness to me is, is leadership. Oh, Good job, guys. Good job, fellas. is it got to be so damn the standards with which I would have held all my executives to, and myself to, at Ameritrade, would be identical to the standards that I hold my players to. Welcome to the Toughness Podcast. I'm your host, Paddy Steinfort, and today we have a multi-threat, I would say. that If we were, if we were playing football, this is a dual-threat talent, a dual-threat quarterback, a leader of men in multiple areas. We have Joe Moglia, who has not only been an outstanding football coach in his own right, but probably better known for his performances and his achievements in finance. He has led TD Ameritrade as the former CEO and chairman of TD Ameritrade, currently chairman of Fundamental Global Investors and Capital Wealth Advisors. And he is also now the chair of athletics and executive advisor to the president at Coastal Carolina University. Welcome to the show, Joe. I'm happy to be on, Patty. Thanks very much for having me. Great to have you here. And as I said, a dual threat, because it's not often we can talk about some people who have achieved excellence in one field, let alone two, in both of yours, football and finance, you have reached the peak. And I'll just give a little more background there. That's my brief intro not that I normally give to guests, but because your CV is so long and storied, we have to go a little bit deeper. Just specifically on the football side, you were the head football coach. So now you're an advisor there, but you were the head football coach at Coastal Carolina. And in the first five seasons, your team went to the national playoffs all five years and was conference champion four times. That, I'm, I'm throwing some numbers out there. Is that that's correct, yeah, that's right? True. That's true. Actually, so the, the, a uh, very winning I, percentage. Yeah, the current role that I have is when I stepped down at the 2018 season, I promoted my guy, my offensive coordinator, and I am executive. I'm not. A, chairman of athletics really only means I'm executive director for football. Football still reports to me. And certainly the head coach runs football, but it reports to me. And then separate from that, we have a new president, and he asked me to stay on his executive advisor. So I'm executive advisor to the president and executive director for football, which means I'm still responsible for it. Got it's not, so it d- sounds is it better fair to say it's like the college version of being the GM? The coach works with yeah. you. You yeah. also talk to the president. Yeah. You're like the in-between guy. Yeah. The glue that's guy, if, they were, if we were talking about a locker room. No, that's fair. Yeah. And so that's one area where you've been incredibly successful, a winning percentage of over 70%. In your last 11 years of coaching, you had eight championship teams. That's pretty phenomenal numbers. But if we talk about numbers, then finance is another area where they're very important, probably more important. And when we go over there, you were at Merrill Lynch for 17 years before you became CEO at TD Ameritrade. And when you finished as CEO, so it might've been a well, 2001, 2008, so seven years, the shareholders had enjoyed a 500% return. Now, as, as far as numbers go in finance, that's pretty damn good, right? And just for some more numbers for context, for those of you who are 
into the business world or finance world, these will obviously slap you in the face. But even for someone who's not incredibly tuned into finance, like a lot of our listeners are from military or sport background, these numbers probably speak for themselves at close. So when, when finishing up, the combined company was worth $100 billion with client assets of $7 trillion. That's with the TR at the start. And when Joe arrived, those were only $700 million and $24 billion. So the increase is phenomenal. And I guess we'll, we'll start there just as a general guide, Joe, because one of the first questions we ask our guests is, what does toughness look like in your arena, in your experience, in your area, and particularly with regards to the business? Because we have a lot of athletes and coaches come on here, but not many people who've turned out a 500% profit in the business world. Yeah, so can you talk to us about that? Of course, Patty. I think just to add one thing to the stats you, you've given, I was either chairman or CEO at TD Ameritrade for about 19 years. And at the end of that, we had done a deal with Schwab, where Schwab was acquiring us. You referenced the close. It was when we closed the Schwab deal that those numbers were, 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 were accurate. And when we closed the Schwab deal, then I stepped down from that responsibility. And that now is behind me, although I'm proud of that. So with regard to kind of how do I look at toughness? I think, you know, when you begin sort of in a neighborhood like I began, I began in the gang area, that was section of New York City. And immigrant parents, dad was born in Italy, never finished eighth grade. Mom born in Ireland, never finished high school. I was the oldest. Seven of us lived in a two-bedroom, one-bathroom apartment. Two of my very best friends that I was with every day died in high school or got killed in high school. One died of a drug overdose. The other was killed by the police robbing a liquor store. Had I not been playing high school football, I would have been with a guy robbing a liquor store. Not a maybe. I would have been with a guy. So the early stage of my life, toughness was probably defined as, you know, you're not backing down from a fight. You know, you've been able to hold your own with guys that maybe are bigger or bigger or stronger than what you are. You know, stick up for your guys if somebody comes into your neighborhood and they're not supposed to be there. Toughness is probably very much defined like that. I think when I looked at my father, my father had a f- small fruit store, sold bananas and apples in, in the Bronx his entire life, you know, worked really, really hard. Took one day a week off, never took a vacation. And I think toughness for him was getting up at five o'clock every morning and not getting home till nine o'clock at night, worked six days a week in an effort to kind of take care of his family. And then with my football career, which is the way I began my career, uh, I think a lot of people in football say, well, toughness is good. No, that's just your willingness to be able to hit somebody. You're willing to be able to take a shot. You're willing to be able to go through tough practices, et cetera. And that adjusts a little bit in terms of as, as you wind up going through Wall Street, because I think there you have a lot of pressure and have to be able to make money. There could be a lot of negative things going on around you. You've got to be able to handle yourself through those times. So toughness, I think, it can take on a different picture based on the environment you happen to be in. But I learned, I think, when I first got my first head coaching job, and I really thought about, you know, instead of going to Wall Street, I wanted a coach. I majored in economics in college and really did think I wanted to go to Wall Street, but I coached my sophomore, junior, senior year at the high school level when I was in college. And I really did love it. And I wanted to pursue that then instead of going, going to Wall Street. And I felt there had to be something greater than that. And back, so we're talking about the spring of 1971. I'm still a senior at Fordham University. I get my first head high school job at Archmere Academy in Claymont, Delaware, all boys Catholic school. By the way, it's the same school that Joe Biden went to. And hmm. um, that's a coincidence. And I remember it's got to be more than just about the winning. And I, I wrote down what turned out to be very, very much my mantra of leadership. And it was 
we're trying to help our guys grow up and become men, but that's some tough macho. But that's some tough macho thing. Toughness can be screwed as macho. That's not toughness to me. Toughness right. does not necessarily mean you got to be the baddest ass in your community. That's not what toughness necessarily means. So toughness to me is is leadership. It's standing on two feet. You take responsibility for yourselves. You always treat others with dignity and respect, and you live with the consequences of your actions. Now, I totally believe in that. There are principles associated with that that we might get into today. Spiritual mm. soundness. Most people really don't know who they are. And if you want to handle yourself, if you want to be happy in life, you've got to be able to handle yourself under stress. And if you really know who you are, you increase the probability you'll make better decisions under stress than what you would be had that not been the case. I love that. Did you just label that spiritual soundness? Yes. Perfect. Because we are definitely, I'm going to put a pin in that and coming back to it because that lines up one of the ways I try and teach it to some athletes. And then then the two other concepts, the courage, again, not where you got to throw yourself in front of a train, but the guts to do what you believe is right. The guts to do what you believe is right. And there's all sorts of pressure. We all play all sorts of roles. But the guts to do what you believe is right. And then love, not making love, but the power of love. It's the commitment to the well-being of others. So I think a lot of leaders, sometimes the egos get in the way. And frankly, they're not that good leaders because of that. And it's a le- real leader understands it's about the people that he's responsible for. You're part of a family. You realize that people within your family is what counts. You're taking care of them. So when I go back, and I didn't mean this to be long-winded, Patty, but I did emphasize there are a lot of different ways you can look at this. It's not being a tough guy. It's not being a tough lady. It's not it's, it's being a real leader, mm. somebody that stands up and can be counted, somebody that you know has got your best interest at heart, somebody that's got the guts to do what they believe is right, somebody that doesn't make excuses, somebody that takes responsibility for themselves. And at the end of the day, they almost always really, really know who they are with that. Right. And that's we got to the spiritual scientist concept. I love it. I love it. I've got a very vivid picture in my imagination is, as you described your father selling fruit from a shop in the Bronx. Now, my, my knowledge of the Bronx is from Yankee Stadium and going up there with either the Toronto Blue Jays or the Boston Red Sox is feared <laughs> yep. enemy territory. And occasionally because I had a place residing in New York City, I would just get the train up, right? So I would get off at the station there, walk down underneath that big old rickety bridge towards Yankee Stadium and yep. I'd see all the people yep. running their markets and on the street, right? And so this is what I'm picturing with your dad, but I'm picturing it way back in the day. And it's freezing cold as New York can get. And so I'm picturing, yeah, that's there's some tough people working and living under that bridge, right? And so I wonder how much of that you seeing your dad growing up who didn't finish school but still provided for his family, how much of that, your description of that leadership version, like a tough leader, comes from watching your dad versus other people that you observed along the way? I think I've been asked, Patty, oftentimes, like, who have been people that have had the greatest impact on my life? And I don't mean a cliche-like, but I really do reference my parents. And sometimes when you learn, you learn what not to do. And sometimes they become your greatest learning experiences. Now, my mom and dad were very, very different. My dad, without question, worked his ass off to provide for his family. He was a good man, and he loved us, and he worked hard. But dad was kind of usually focused on dad. For dad, the glass was always half empty. There was always, and that mantra that I talked about, my leadership mantra, you're standing on two feet, you take responsibility for yourselves. You live the consequences of your actions. Dad, when things didn't go right for dad, that, that, that seldom took responsibility for that. It was somebody else's fault. It was so, always some reason why things weren't as good as what they should be. 
And again, they work long hours. They had three or four guys working in the store. And when dad was in a bad mood, which was probably half the time, you know, he didn't hesitate to yell, scream, and holler at everybody, you know, including me. So toughness for my father was really, really work hard. And I saw that. And I think I got my work ethic and my desire for excellence, I think, from my father. But also, when I tried to think about what kind of leader I wanted to be, what kind of leader I wanted, wanted to become, I went to spiritual soundness. Now, dad was a very devout person, but I don't think he had spiritual soundness. I don't think he really knew who he was. And I don't think dad, dad always had the courage to do what he really believed was right. He did what he thought was best for him. And again, the concept of love, he's always doing about somebody else. Again, dad loved us, but for him, it really came back to himself. Very different from my mother. So my dad, for example, football and baseball and sports were really my life. And my dad hated me hated me in sports when i told him that i was going to begin a coaching through a coach instead of go to wall street he thought i had lost my mind he didn't want to like want to talk about it and he thought i was like being childlike now the reality is i don't think he hated me in sports but when i was in sports i couldn't be in the fruit store and for him my being a fruit store was far more important than anything else one other story i, I became a father when i was a teenager I got married when i was a teenager and my dad's advice to me was not to go to college and my, his advice to me was I have some family support, which I realized there was no money now to go to college. I realized that, but I had to figure it out myself. I was, that didn't surprise me. And the way I should handle this is work, work, go work, work with him full time in the fruit store. And I, having worked for him from the time I was 10 and now I was 19 or so, I really realized, again, I think I knew myself and I think. That's not what I wanted to do. I had to have, I had to go to college. I had to find out what else was out there. I had to find out what the options there might be. So I remember telling dad that, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go to college. He said, so you're making a big mistake. So what did I learn from my dad? I think I learned an awful lot from my dad. Work ethic, standard of excellence, but almost all of my leadership qualities, what I've learned from my dad in terms of what not to be. In reverse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's reverse. I've often counseled either staff members or maybe assistant coaches at times, even head coaches underneath GMs when they've been bitching and moaning about what a leader is doing to them or in front of them or not for them. And they're, they're really struggling. And one of the things I say is, hey, sometimes you learn really well what you won't do when you're a leader by watching other leaders. I was just struck by that. I was also struck as you shared your experience there of telling your dad you were going to A, go to school or B, coach. Because I literally had the same conversation with my dad when I was about 30-something, I can't remember. I was actually working in his business just as a bridge between one job and coming back to the country. And I was like, I think I want to coach. Like, I think I want to actually make that my job. And his response was, I think you're making a big mistake because it's there's not many jobs as a coach. And I was like, yeah, I know, but this is what I'm going to go do. And I think that, like, so I just, I hear you talking that and I'm struck by the, the resonance and the and the uh, the parallels, but particularly you know, that no, brings us to that. You know, ahead, my dad was your dad's advisor. Maybe he was giving him. <laughs> maybe he was giving him direction. Was maybe like, there is really, really there was some spiritual connection there. What you got to be able to tell him. Yeah, and you know what? I don't know. I think as an Italian American, there might have been some religious Catholic notes in the background. But my my father was brought up Catholic, and that was the version of toughness. It was like you do the right thing, you stiff up a lip, and there was a very clear definition of toughness for my father's generation, at least in Australia, that, as you said, it's different things to different people in different contexts. I love that, the way you worded that, and we'll explore that a little more. 
with some of the other contexts in your life. But in particular, this is probably a good place to jump into that spiritual soundness because your description of both those conversations with your father, my own experience, and plenty of listeners will have had similar where you've kind of chosen your path as opposed to what everyone else expects of you or thinks you should or could be doing. And that is really an, an exercise in what do I value the most? And when I talk about spiritual stability is the way I refer to it because I'm trying to frame it as the way we train people physically. You can do stability training on your core or your ankle or whatever, and that's all about coming back to center, coming back to this is who I truly am or this is where I am really balanced when this is in my life and this is in my life. And so I wonder if you can share a little bit more about how you became so clear about that at either a young age around college or even as you stepped into coaching, that's a pretty seminal transition. You've gone to college, you've busted your butt to even pay for it and survive, and you've got a finance degree, and then you don't go use it. That seems like bonkers. So talk us through how you decided that, and maybe you didn't decide, maybe your gut just made the decision for you. Talk us through that. I think becoming a father at a young age meant I had to, absolutely take responsibility for myself. And I had other responsibilities that I had to pay attention to. And I still had my whole life in front of me. And I didn't know, it wasn't like I had a whole lot of experience. I grew up in a neighborhood. And while it was very street savvy, it wasn't like I was particularly sophisticated. It wasn't like I had a wisdom of different cultures in terms of what goes on around the world. But I realized early on, I think about it in terms of, let's say, my daughter or my own life or my siblings, the people that I care about. But what is it you really care? What do we care about? It wasn't the number one thing that we really care about as far as our loved ones go. Whatever the children, whoever they may be, our loved ones. And really, at the end of the day, you just want to be happy. They don't have to have the best job. They have the best job in the world. They're not happy. That doesn't make you feel good as a parent or as a loved one. So why is it people, what do we have to do to be happy? So when my dad's talking to me about going to the food store instead of going to college, is my going to the food store going to make me happy? If I'm happy, I think I have to live up to my potential. If I'm not happy, I'm not going to live up to my potential. If I don't live up to my potential, how am I going to feel about that? So I have found over the years, by digging into friends, players, et cetera, that I don't think most people really know who they are. A spiritual soundness can be religious in nature, but it doesn't have to be. And I think we tend to be a composite of the people around us. So who I am relative to my father may be different from my mother different from my siblings, different from my brother versus sister, different from my girlfriend, different from my peers, different from my teachers, different from my coaches, different from other relatives, whoever it might be, because we all, all of us, no matter how bad you act, you want to please other people. You want other people to like you. You just want that. that that's a, that's a, no matter how negative you might be, you want that. You all want that. So we adjust a little bit. So therefore, when we make decisions, do we really make decisions because that's who we really are? Or in effect, we've been influenced by other factors. So spiritual soundness then to me means really, truly digging down deep. It's an examination of conscience. It's just about you. And one of the, I, I go through exercise with this and I try to teach my players and my colleagues, you know, that is worth doing something similar where I take a legal pad, just start to write, you know, who am I really? What's my favorite colors? What's my favorite music? What makes me tick? What are my core skill sets? I just keep writing. And then you take a break. Then you go back to what you wrote. And I bet you 70% of it, no, 25, 30% of it, you probably change. You say, you know, I say I like that music. But I don't really like that music that much. I like it because my, my, my girlfriend likes that music. And you start to develop an understanding then of who you are. And there's only two things here that you got to know. First, I think you got to write it down. 
But secondly, you can never share it with anybody because the second you share it with anybody, you're subconsciously trying to look for them for their approval by definition. So no one can ever see this. Wow. You're doing it by yourself. So even as like, I, I love the methodology here and I'm going to compare it to something in a second, but you're saying you've encouraged people, players, other coaches, you've guided people through this, right? So, but you would tell them not to share it with you. No, you can't share it with me. Now that you can huh. ask me how about the process like I'm working this, but not about what you're writing down there, not about who you are. That's got to come from you. And the whole point is for you to know yourself. Now, I think we increase the probability of happiness by making the right decisions under stress. The better you know who you are. Example, I'm a father. Am I going to go to college? I'm going to work at the fruit store. I'm now I'm a college. I'm going to go to Wall Street. I'm going to coach. Those are critical decisions that, yeah. you, that, that are stressful decisions. Making the right decision under stress has an awful lot to do with whether or not you're gonna you're gonna feel be you're gonna be happy. Whether or not you're making the right decision. So if I really know who I am, all I do is I increase the probability that I will make a better decision under stress than I would if I didn't really know who I was. And if I do that, then there's a good chance I'm gonna feel better about myself. I'm gonna feel more productive, and that ultimately is definitely going to lead to a sense of happiness, a sense of well-being, in terms with regard to who I am. I but love most of us. Most of us don't know that. Most of us don't yeah. don't get that. And I think really having the spiritual soundness concept down has been, been with me since I was probably twenty years old. And that leadership concept, taking responsibility for yourself, standing on two feet, treat others with dignity, respect, live the consequences of your actions. That's it. Those two things for me, been without question, my competitive advantage over my lifetime. You're listening to Toughness, a podcast where some of the world's best performers from different fields share their personal stories about pressure, stress, and success. This series of interviews is a product of the Human Performance Think Tank, with thanks to the U.S. Army and Booz Allen Hamilton. Coming up later in the show. Not one rule. We had a standard. Guess what that was? Standing on two feet, take responsibility for yourself, treat it with dignity and respect, and live with the consequences of your action. So damn proud is something that people wouldn't often think like just having clarity on your values is really important to, like you said, here's the example I'm going to make successful decision-making. You said it in, in different words, having clear North compass, if you will, this is really what I'm trying to do. So when I run into a dead end and I can go left or right or go backwards and find another route, knowing where I'm trying to get to is one of the key, one of the key inputs of good decisions and I'll, i'm actually going to throw out here an example of a process i literally last week in new york city or just outside in jersey working with a ufc fighter who was getting ready for a, a comeback match after he got knocked out last time and we got to talking about an exercise which he equated to you know the app true bill have you ever heard of something similar yeah, where yeah. they like they find all your subscriptions and then you get to choose what you actually stay tuned into and you get rid of the others and we were talking about in the moment, whether it's at training or whether you're with your family and you're trying to decide, do I stay up an extra hour or not? Because sleep's important. Or whether you're actually in the fight and you're working through your strategy is being really clear on like, I only have two or three subscriptions left and everything else doesn't matter. This is what's really important to me because the, the core concept. And as you said, better you, you don't guarantee better decisions but you give yourself the best chance of making the best decisions to give you the best outcomes. That includes training decisions. That includes structuring your life. And it definitely includes when you're in the heat of battle. And I think the way you put it there is 
eerily similar to the way this UFC fighter, a clearly, clearly different field from football and finance to fighting, even though there's similarities. But the parallels of his process or the process we worked through and what you've just described are, are striking. Do you think that that's a, a fair summary of like, let's say we weren't talking about fight strategies or we weren't talking about priorities at training, but instead we're talking about spiritual elements or what we value. Here's who I am. Is it better to only have three things and just get rid of the rest because that makes it clearer or should we be a little more complex than that when we're thinking about it? Well, first of all, Patty, everything you said resonates with me and everything you said is the same concept. This is the same philosophy. Why does it make an awful lot of sense? To me? I think in terms of, I want to back up a minute because I think I'll better answer your question with the following understanding. And that is, well, go back to, I forgot the exact example you were using, but you know, the metaphor user, you got to get through it jet engine, whatever it was, and you got to go this way and I go, but something's happening. Okay. Now do I go to the right? Do I go to the left? Do I plow ahead? Do I back up? Do I change my course? What do I do? All right. Part of that decision is not just, I want to get over there. Part of that decision is I'm not putting myself in that position. If I rec don't recognize that I've got the skill sets to handle myself in that position. So a great example, I think, let's say with, I mean, I changed my career multiple times. So let's say all my players, well, they're getting ready to graduate from college eventually. And whether they play in the NFL or they don't play in the NFL, there's got to be life for them at the football. So what's the career path that they should choose? And now I go back to the spiritual sound and say, and now may I give you an example in terms of the way it practically works? 100%. Yeah. All right. So I, as I said, you got a legal path, right? You put that. Now, I'm assuming you've done a good job. You know who you are. You know what your skill sets are. You know what matters to you. You know what turns you on, turns you off, all that. All right. Now, you think about. Not necessarily who you want to work for, but what do you want to do? I, you know, do you want to do things? Uh, you know, do I want to teach? Do I like the concept of an engineer, the concept of, of a business guy, a finance guy, a coach, whatever it might be, whatever it might be. Then you got to take time. Too often we do something because that's kind of what our parents did. We got a teacher that we really like or something. Hey, that looks cool. But we've not thought this through. So take the two or three areas that you think you might really truly be interested in and spend some time on your own, really figuring it out. What are the skill sets to be successful in that particular field? And write those down. Right? Again, remember, nobody, you're doing this with, with nobody else. Now you're looking at the skill sets you do have, like an illegal pad over here, and then you have the skill sets required for success over here in that particular field. Do you have those skill sets? And again, it's only you. You're being as honest as you can with yourself. You know, don't lie to yourself. This is the whole exercise. If the answer is no, do I don't care what the field is. Do not go down that field, period. Mistake. Don't do it. Not because your father likes it, not because your wife likes it, not because your girlfriend. Don't do it. If the answer is yes, I really do have those skill sets, you still got to ask yourself one more question. And that is, would this be something I could be passionate about? Is this something I'd really, really enjoy? If the answer to both those questions is yes, the probability of you picking the right path is significantly higher. And by definition, you've got a competitive advantage over other people that are trying that would wind up in that in that same area. So you're not putting yourself in a position where you can't handle it. Now, many times we can't handle a certain thing because we don't have the quite the skill sets that we need to be able to handle a particular task, function, job, career path, whatever it might be. When I get back to, you no, know, is it two things? Is it three things? I think what happens is you have to begin with a, a little bit more of a white paper. And mm. you start to fill in the white paper. But then once you decide kind of which way you go, you narrow that down. You narrow yeah, yeah. that down. That's so what now, made me think of it. Right. So now, now, in this particular example, 
I know I've got the skill sets. I know something I'm passionate about. I can make a decision on a career path. And get ready for a fight. I, first of all, I got to have a pretty good understanding of what my opponent can do. If I lost last time, why did I lose? I got to understand why I lost last time. And well, I need 12 things in my head. I got to get two or three things right. Now, if I'm a football team, a lot of coaches, because they, they, they get impressed with themselves and they have a really, really well thought out, beautiful playbook, game plan, et cetera. But you got to have 11 guys function absolutely at one with one without a mistake and within a fraction of a second of the ball being snapped. Oh, well, the more complex that is, the greater the probability one of the guys is going to make mistakes. So, so you have the wisdom, same thing in the business world, you have the wisdom to have a well thought out strategy that has contingencies. But you have to have no the, 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 the intellect to be able to have that. But you got to have the wisdom to simplify it mm-hmm. so the fighter can execute. The team can execute or 10,000 people in your organization can execute. So simplifying it, I think you begin large, then you simplify it to what matters the most. And then you take that home. Then then you deliver on that. Then that's your focus. That's what you're going to care about. You're going to get those things right. And if you get those things right, most of the time, the ultimate result will be what you want them to be. Unless the other guy's tougher than you is going to kick the shit out of you. That's right. Sometimes (laughs) you just... That can happen too. I think that's a great, that's a great, like, equivocation almost there where you're like you know this 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 but sometimes and, and you've mentioned the word probability a bunch of times here and that's really the when i was a junior coach and particularly as an athlete i was like i'm going to do this and this is going to help me win and i wanted to believe that the more and more i've been exposed to success and failure and you've obviously had much more years and at an incredible level in multiple fields the more I've realized that it's less about controlling stuff and more about just giving us a chance. And if it's a 70% chance, that means three times out of 10, it's not going to happen. But if you know you've done all the right things in advance, then you can step out there and say, well, they were just better than me today or the ball bounced the wrong way or whatever it might be. I'm curious how much though, and we'll get into specific football stuff in a second because you raised an example there of a complex game plan, making it simple that I want to dig into. But when we talk about, well, even your thought processes here, they're incredible. They're both simple, but also they give time and breadth to be able to get into the detail of what we're talking about and then filter it down. However, some of the guests that we have on this show talk about toughness almost in two types, where one is, can I work through tough things and do the work required and attention to detail and grind and grit, et cetera, et cetera. And then the other one is, in that moment, where I have no, like you said, I can't go backwards here. They have a thing called an immersion event in the Navy SEALs, where it's as soon as, once we're in and we kick that door down, I can't go backwards once I kick the door down. This game is on and I have to be tough in that moment and make decisions. I don't have time to think anymore. And so I'm curious with a lot of what you've talked about here is a process that you give time to and space to and making big life decisions. But you also ran TD Ameritrade. For those who aren't aware, it's a trading platform, which involves obviously pretty sometimes in the moment decisions. And I'm curious how much, Joe, of what we're talking about is, yes, there's a complex process behind it, but at some point you've got to pull the trigger and I just have to hold my breath and go because I've done the work. Does that apply here as well? Or is, yeah. is most of yeah, your stuff contemplative well, long-term? I think we're very much in sync in terms of the way we look at this stuff, Patty. Again, you begin with a larger, I want to I know what's going on. I want to know the pros and the cons to be able to make a decision. Then, by making that decision, A, what are the probability we're going to be able to execute? And then is it achieving what we want to achieve? If the answer to those are yes, we got to go. We got to go. And I think almost every job I've ever had, probably the people we were competing against, or I was competing against, 
the leader of that group, probably knew much more about that particular product field, et cetera, than what I did. But their team couldn't beat my team. I just mean football, I mean, in the business world. Like our municipal division would beat their municipal division. We would wind up number one, not them. And because of the ability to be able to bring people together. Now, I think there's some people spend so much time uh, because they're so brilliant sometimes. And they've got all the pluses and the minuses. They get this and that. And then they look at this, that, but they don't make a decision. And you got analysis by paralysis. So, no, I think there's a time. I think that's great. I'm a Navy SEAL. First of all, I'm well-trained. So what, immersion, the door's down. Well, bang, I got to go. I got to go. I can't think. I got to go. But I've been trained to do that. Now, again, spiritual soundness. In making a decision to become a Navy SEAL, did I have the skill sets to be able to handle myself under really, really, really serious duress, where I've got to be a great team member, unselfishly, and my life and their lives on the line? Do I have those skill sets? And is this something I could embrace and be really proud of? So if you didn't do that, that probably you never would have made it as a SEAL to begin with. Let's make believe you did. did. That door goes down. You're not the right guy in that room then. But it's too late then. And if you're an incredibly tough-minded guy and, you know, a really incredible physically tough guy, maybe you get through sales sales training. That still doesn't mean you have the mentality to be able to handle it when the door really goes down and it's for real. And you know you know when you're practicing or working out or you're training, you know it's training, right? Now you're out in the field, you're in Afghanistan, and the door goes down. The door goes down. Better be something that you know you're not only trained for, but you're cut out for. So I think all those things very, very much go hand in hand, but they're critical. They're critical, I think, in terms of being successful. And that goes back to, did you make the right choice as to whether or not that was the right field for you to be in? Yeah. I think the, as you said, we're very aligned on the way we look at these things. I want, I want to switch now to, you've just, let's, let's go to, you've just finished college and you're going into football coaching. And a lot of what you're describing here is good decision-making psychology, which isn't taught very well in many places, but you've obviously picked it up somewhere along the way. How much of that did you take from your business school training into your coaching? Because your start, it wasn't like you became a good coach. You started and you were like, bang, first five years winning things. And I wonder how much was it coming from learning things about strategy and decision-making in a business context and you were able to say, hey, I'm going to use these over here in a locker room or in a play call sheet or whatever it might be. Do you feel like there was transference there or it was you felt a calling to be a coach and you learned as you went? There, I did feel a calling to be a coach, but I went through this spiritual soundness exercise. But there is transference in terms of skill sets. So let's back up a second. So when I graduated from college, remember, I began coaching. So the first 16 years of my career, it was a football coach. Then yeah. I went to Wall Street. And especially when I began as a bond seller, and then I moved it into senior executive roles over time, I had no question. I was a much better bond salesman because of my experience as a football coach. And as I moved into executive management, I was a better leader because of my experience as a leader as a football coach. So going back then to football after my time, so then I was coached 16 years, 24 years actively involved with Wall Street, not counting chairmanships. 24 years, then going back to football, well, I still had 16 years under my belt, and the experiences I had as a fairly senior leader in both the national and the global scale made me a much better coach. Mm. Now, I wasn't going back as the offensive coordinator. I was skill sets, 
I was very good at that when I was coached the first time. But I'm going to hire that guy. I'm going to hire the right guys with regard to this. But the standards I'm going to have will be different than other standards. We're going to do things differently from other people. And that's exactly what we did. So, for example, Coastal Carolina. So while it may have been my first time as a head college coach, well, I already had 18, 19 years coaching under my belt and plus 24 years on Wall Street. I was ready to go. The leadership in the business world and leadership in finance and leadership in athletics and leadership in coaching and leadership in the military and leadership in education, all the same principles. What changes is the product, the product yeah. changes. Product of football is very, very different than the product of product finance. But the standards with which I would have held all my executives to and myself to at Ameritrade would be identical to the standards we just talked about that I hold my players to. Now, by the way, at Coastal, there were two things we did. Nobody in the nation did. And I mean nobody. We only people did, did this. Number one, we had no rules. Zero. That's unheard of. Unheard of. You've been involved with that letters your whole life. I bet you got rules all over the place. Not one rule. But we had a standard. Guess what that was? Standing your own two feet. Take responsibility for yourself. Treat us with dignity and respect. Live with the consequences of your actions. I wrote that decades ago in that very first head high school job when I was still a senior at Fordham University. Now, we gave that a name. Now, we called it BAM, be a man. Now, oh, that's sexist. Okay, it's not sexist. First of all, I got 125 guys that are playing. Then I got another 25 guys that are coaches, analysts, interns. I got 150 guys. BAM works. There's a great logo. We got a trademark. It's B-A-M, capital O's. We got a football player in the middle of the A. Now, that's the same standard I raised my daughters. That's the same standard I held my female or male executives to in the business world. It's the same standard I hold, hold my coaching staff to. That's so BAM. So BAM is really, it's more of an acronym for leadership, representative of leadership. So therefore, all these different things that, that we talk about really literally become part of that. Yeah. You take responsibility for yourselves. There are no excuses. And we get into some great examples with, with regard to that. And, at the and end how much, the, how much does that almost form like i hear you describe that cool acronym and the principles that underlie it like like you said they're standards they're not rules because they apply to multiple contexts you know you can take responsibility in the gym in the classroom at home out on the street at night at 1am there's all sorts of ways you can apply that as a standard or as a principle rather than the rule says you have to do this in the gym so i i think that's a really cool way of approaching it i did for those who aren't seeing the video there was a little smirk on my face when Joe just said we had no rules. And I was like, oh, okay, let's see where this goes. But obviously it went well. Anyway, back to the acronym, BAM. How much, like I hear you say that, is that the spiritual soundness of the team? Like can you have this applied at a group level as you've talked about it a lot individually? Is that your way of saying this is who we are as a team and it gives us spiritual soundness? Or am I stretching that too far? Yeah, no, no spiritual soundness is knowing who you are, period. No, it gives you peace of mind. You know who you are. Okay, that's individually. Now, having said that, spiritual soundness does work as the coach responsible for the team, staff responsible for the team. Okay, so we have a playbook, but to what? What are our core competencies? What are we good at? What are we not so good at? What kind of competition are we going to face over the span of the next couple of seasons? So, how do we pick from our playbook to determine what would be the best game plan that's the right fit for us? So. I'm not asking my guys to execute an intricate passing attack if, they're, if we don't have a quarterback to execute that or we don't have the right receivers to be able to do that. And a lot of times, a simple example, the uh, 
uh, what time we playing in the national playoffs? And it, it was a great game, but we down to like a third string cornerback and he's playing against an All-American. And then in the third quarter, he got beat for a touchdown. And I was in with the defensive staff that day. And I said, well, what happened here? And the guy said, well, coach, you know, he's a third string guy. He's an All-American. I go, when he said that, what was he doing? He was making an excuse. When you make an excuse, you allow yourself off the hook. You subconsciously let yourself off the hook. And I was not okay with this. And I said, now we won the game and things were kind of good. I, I was not okay with this. And I said, well, you just told me the guy's, a th- and I, I knew that anyway, the guy's third string. He's an All-American. He may get drafted. And you blame it on him when he gets beat deep. So you didn't disguise it. You didn't give him help underneath. You had him go to the wide side. You, what did you do to prevent that from happening? So you intentionally gave a guy a job he couldn't do, and you act like that's his fault? Again, that's your responsibility. It's the same thing in the business world. So I go to Ameritrade. We're going out of business. So what are our core competencies? What are we good at? I realized after a few weeks, we really weren't a financial firm. We were a technology firm and a financial service wrapper. So what was our core competency? We're good at at transaction processing. So in the Wall Street world, that was buying and selling stock. So we went a million of other things. We got rid of all of them. Go back to your fight. We got rid of all of them. And we focused on what we knew we could do the best. And we, the money we saved over here, we saved half of it to offset our losses. And then we used the other half to pour more money into what we were good at. And that's what happened. So your organization, you call it spiritual soundness, it's your core competency. But in my spiritual soundness, mm. I understand what my core competencies are. right? So spiritual soundness applies, I think, to the larger organization with regard to what are your core competencies? How do you leverage those so you become a winner or a leader? in the fields you choose to participate. You are listening to Toughness. And if you're this far into the episode, there's a good chance you like the show. You can add to the conversation with the whole review, rate, subscribe, and share thing. If this helps just one person who needs to hear what our guests share to get them through today, it'll all be worth it. Stay tuned for more coming up, including... I know who I am and my strengths and my weaknesses are. I know what makes me tick. And I have the guts and the wisdom not to put myself in a position that I'm going to fail. So damn proud. One of the questions that I often ask, we often talk about on this show is, what's one characteristic or trait of someone who's really good in your arena? And it sounds like, given that we've heard the word spiritual soundness at least 20 times from you and then another 20 from me, that might be it. But I want to still ask the question, just to clarify if there's anything else. Is that the number one predictor of success for you, in your eyes, sorry, as a leader in finance or in football, is spiritual soundness? Or is there some other characteristics that are a little more industry specific? Well, okay. So in a particular field, if I'm hiring a senior person on Wall Street, if I'm hiring a chief financial officer, well, yes, they have basic skill sets for a chief financial officer. If I'm recruiting a quarterback, well, he's got to have some skill sets a quarterback's supposed to have. He can't be six foot four, 340 pounds and slow. Okay, so there's certain skill sets an individual is supposed to have to be able to handle their jobs. But in every one of those, what else are they good at? What else do they care about? So if I'm going to design the CFO job, I will give a little wrinkle difference between a CFO job for Sam versus Sally versus Charlie, because they all have different interests. They have different things they might be good at. They all got to know what to do with balance sheets and P&L and ledgers. But what else can they do that kind of separates them from others? So you have the same, same thing with regards to our football and our system. What is it our guys can do that they're good at that we can take advantage of by being able to go to leverage? So you know, you've got to have, remember, go back to, if you're going to go down a certain path, you have to have skill sets for that particular path. 
right? But what separates you, what gives you the competitive advantage is just knowing who, remember, it's not necessarily religious, but I really know who I am. I know who I am. I know my strengths. I know my weaknesses. are. I know what makes me tick. And I have the guts and the wisdom not to put myself in a position that I'm going to fail. So you use the seal, seal example. Once I'm in that room, that's it. That's it. But I needed to think well and hard ahead of time to make sure that I was the guy that was willing to go in that room. And then I, and I, I would have, and there would be because of me and others like me, there'd be greater probability we'd achieve our mission and we'll all come out alive. I love that. You, you mentioned right? so that. It's the competitive. It's, a, it's, it's for, for all my coaches, are good coaches, not all of them. Every one of them swore they'd live up to BAM and they got it. Yeah, I got it. Got it. Take responsibility for ourselves. But first I said, well, he wasn't that good. I, bang. That, you're not taking responsibility. I don't expect my coaches to yell at officials to make a bad call because why? Why then? Because my coach's job is to make sure that players don't commit penalties. That players job make sure they commit they don't they don't commit penalties. So if you're yelling at the official, yeah, I tell you, well, that's a bad call. So that takes that responsibility off my chest. And I player hears this. All right. So the standard for excellence, taking responsibility for yourself and always treating others with dignity and respect, that's it. That's what it is. The spiritual soundness piece with that means you're not going to be putting yourself into situations where you're, you know you're going to pick the right field. Doesn't mean you may not have incredible challenges. Doesn't mean you may not, you may get whacked, but you've increased the probability that you're going to be successful in the field that you choose to participate in. Yeah. Then you got to be smart in terms of how you run it. Again, simplify things, be able to do other yeah. things. Don't ask somebody, but you don't make excuses. The excuses are out. They're out. Yeah. And excuses you, happen all the time. You talked about that, you know, doing the thinking, enough thinking in advance to not get into those situations. I'll refer back to the Yankees again. There was a, she's not there anymore, but one of their former mental coaches, Lauren Johnston, has a great saying that I borrow. I never, I never say it's my saying when I know who, who said it, which is if you don't want to think in the moment, you've got to think a lot in advance. And it really applies to what you're talking about there, I think, Joe. We're starting to get towards the end of the time. And I don't want to, I'd be remiss to not ask you this because often this show and because of by nature of the topic we'll talk about a lot of hardship we'll talk about getting you know like you described some of the stuff you went through as a kid often we'll talk about setbacks with with athletes or coaches on their career progression navy seals and surgeons we'll talk about dealing with death but we want to make sure we're also pointing to the good stuff and finding what actually lights people's fires and so can you uh, it's probably hard to name one given all of the achievements we read out at the start of the show but What's a highlight for you along the way that you would associate with because I was tough or because we had built a tough team, this is something that happened? I think the one consistent thing that's happened for me throughout the span of I think in my personal life, but also my coaching career as well as my business career, is I really do think that I've had a positive impact on other people. And I think you know, you're not going to win everybody over. It's not a matter of winning people over. It's a matter of having a positive impact on who they are, how they make decisions, how they think, that that type of thing. And that's what I think is that touches me the most. When I went to the business world from coaching, my interest in the people that I ultimately became responsible for very much came from the philosophy I had as a coach. The desire to have a positive impact on others. We do that by having a winning program. We do that by having a successful business, successful operation. But I think I think that, that that's but on my tombstone. On my tombstone, I wanted to say, the guy had a real impact on others, period. That's it. I'd be okay with that. I love it. It's, it's probably a uh, – well, you've, you've reminded me a couple of times here. Of, I'm lucky enough to have 
and to be able to call Cliff Kingsbury a good friend. He's the head coach of the Arizona Cardinals now, but we worked together when he was back at Texas Tech. And one of the things that struck me, we accidentally discovered that we both shared a common favorite poem, which is a random thing to talk about with a head coach, right? But uh, it's the poem If by Rudyard Kipling. And Rudyard it talks Kipling. About, okay, that's in my playbook. Yeah. In fact, if you didn't say that, I would have said, is it Rudyard Kipling's If? So that very first high school playbook I had when I was 22 years old, where I wrote down, standing on two feet, take responsibility for yourself, et cetera. That poem is in that book. And that's kind of stayed with me throughout the span of my career. I mean, go ahead, but right. I want you to finish your point. But that's an incredible, that's my favorite poem too. Yeah. Well, there you go. I'm getting goosebumps as you describe that because it does uh, align with very much the concept of what you just said there is I asked for a highlight, but often the last question or the second, second last question is what are, you, what are you trying to achieve by even coming on this show or doing some of the other stuff that you do where you're sharing your wisdom beyond what you need to nowadays, right? And it's to have a positive impact on people. And that really was at the core of Cliff's coaching. Underneath, he's an offensive genius and he handles people really well and he's a cool cat. But underneath it all, he wants to impact the lives of young men and now of an entire city because he's very good at what he does. You can keep and your so, head while all men doubt you yes. and yet make allowance for the doubting too. I used to almost have that memorized. I got to get back to that. I got to get back to that one. It's an amazing piece. So I'd encourage everyone to look it up. We'll post it on the on the show notes. But I think that's a, a great way to lead into, you know, if we, if, the big if, can we deal with all of the slings and arrows of life? Can we hold our head when there's pressure? Can we bounce back when it's not great? Can we be true when things are really good and we might get off track? Like there's all these ifs. Then at the end of it, and this is obviously written with a certain context and frame in mind, that then at the end of it, son, what's more is not only will you have achieved life, but you'll be a man. And that was aimed at young men in a football locker room in this instance. And like you said, Joe, for your own BAM acronym. But getting to that last question that I often ask is given everything that you've done, given that amazing resume that we've barely even scratched the surface of and we've talked a lot about the inner game of football or the inner game of finance and leadership in both areas now you're spending a, a bit of time sharing with people like myself and the listeners of this show and you know you know just anyone can google your name and bring up a bunch of appearances on tv shows talking about finance and moves etc but a lot of it is again the inner game of these decisions or some of the bigger picture things what is it that drives you now you can retire and walk off into the sunset. No one ever has to hear about Joe Moglier again. But here you are, you're still sharing your wisdom. What is it that you would hope to achieve with all this? Well, if you go back to hoping that I've had an impact on others, whether that my loved ones, my children, my family, people that are close to me in my life, my players, people that I've worked with, my associates, et cetera, well, that doesn't just automatically stop because you slow down. So I'm not working 80 hours a week, seven days a week for five months when I day off as a coach. And I don't quite have the responsibility, don't have the responsibility on my shoulders that, that, that I did with regard to TV Ameritrade. But because of what I've experienced, I think, frankly, I'm a better leader today than what I probably have been in my life. I think that while my body's breaking down a bit, my mind is as sharp as it's ever been. I can all, feel I can almost see things happen before they happen. So I still think that I can provide wisdom to others that if they listen and think it through, could very much have a positive impact on their lives than they on others. And I can't think of anything else that I could do that's more valuable with that in my life. And I could do that now by giving a talk or uh, being fortunate enough to be, uh, be on your show, Patty. And I'm not working 80 hours a week to do this. So, <laughs> to, so 
uh, you know, to be, I'm writing a book on leadership. So all those things now, you know, I keep myself busy. I'm intellectually stimulated. I'm emotionally stimulated. But at the end of the day, if it were just about me, I could do plenty of things just kind of absorb my, I don't think I'd be happy doing that. I don't think I'd be happy doing that. So is that your, so, is that your takeaway for listeners to be like, if there was one thing they took away, what, what would it be? Where you're like, you know what? If someone looked at my tombstone, this is what Joe thought. Well, it'd be bam. And then the whole thing under that. You stand right. on your own two feet. You take responsibility for yourself. You always treat others with dignity and respect, and you live with the consequences of your actions. Bam, at the end of that, too. And if you really got that down, if you got that down, you're going to, first of all, you increase the probability. You're really going to be happy. Probably going to be very successful. And you're going to be a leader that has a competitive advantage over other leaders. Love it. And, and now you mentioned there writing a book. I, one thing I left out of the intro, because it was taking too much time to talk about everything you do, author, multiple-time author, the only person to have published books in both football and finance. Is there, a, you mentioned, is there an upcoming book or where, where's the best place for people to find Joe Moglia if they want to track you down after this show? Well, the, the, the website, just moglia.com. Again, keep it simple, moglia.com. That's it. <laughs> in fact, I think people, it gets complicated. Why say it Joe Moglia, Coach Mo? It's moglia.com. It's that simple. And uh, I think anything you might might be interested in terms of other we talked about some personal stuff today, Patty. But, you know, in terms of from from my, my career and kind of what's gone, on, it's probably there. I think, I think it's pretty, pretty much there. Great. Well, well Joe, appreciate it. There was a book written about me. You're asking it by Monty Burke, who was a senior editor at Forbes. The name of the oh. book is Fourth and Gold. That's a book about my life up until I took the job at, at uh, Coastal Carolina. Love it. All right. Well, I'll be adding that to my Amazon basket. And Joe, just want to thank you again for sharing with, you can hear the passion when you talk. It's not a, it's not a chore. You love doing this and you, and there's some great wisdom there that obviously applies not just to one field, for, to two or three in your example, football, finance and family, but I'm sure listeners in, in many other fields can apply that wisdom too. So thank you very much for sharing and good luck impacting more lives moving forward. Thanks for having me on, Patty. All the best of luck to you. You do a lot of good, too, in terms of impacting other jobs, and I commend you for that. Other lives. Appreciate it, Joe. All right. I appreciate it. Thank you. So what is it got to be so damn? Uh, excellent. Busting with the 